Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series in the book of Genesis called Confident Faith. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21, verses 11 to 34, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, God Fulfills His Promises. The life of faith is a life that constantly looks to things that are unseen. When the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews describes the great men and women of faith in the past, he says, from verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then skipping forward to verse 16, he says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. That is to say, they were willing to sacrifice present advantages for future ones, ones they had not seen, but ones that God had promised them. Jesus spoke in the same way. Matthew 16, 26, he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And then in the next verse, he adds, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so says Jesus, there is no profit in gaining the world if in the process you've lost eternity. Well, the person who has no faith is going to answer, well, I can't see the world to come. How do I know that that's true? Now, as we've considered the life of Abraham, we remember at the outset of his wild journey of faith, God called him to leave his land and his people and the house of his relatives and go to the land which God would direct him. There God would bless him, make his name great, multiply his offspring, bless the entire world through him, make him into a great nation, and give him the land that he would show him. You see, up till now, none of that was seen. Abraham had promises, but none of the promises were as of yet seen. That is, until the birth of Isaac. When we come to the end of Genesis 21, we will see that a great many of the promises now no longer look like a wild-eyed dream but they now look like they are actually going to happen. To the person of faith, there was never any doubt. But now, even the person without faith, the promises look very likely to happen. Now, of course, this is also true in every believer's life. There comes a time when our faith does become sight. Perhaps it's something that you've prayed for, and now God seems to be granting it to you. Or perhaps, as you think ahead, the event of your own death, when you descend, as David called it, into the valley of the shadow of death, at that very moment of death, you then feel the hand of Christ grasping your faltering hand, and he ushers you into the courts you've longed for by faith for those many years. Now you see your faith becomes sight. It is for this reason that Genesis 21 should be of great encouragement to the people of God. We're going to be dealing with the remainder of Genesis 21 in three sections. In the first section, which covers verses 11 to 16, we see Abraham submitting to the divine command to make the promise absolutely certain. And then in verses 17 to 21, we see God cementing the promise to Abraham, even while he provides grace to Ishmael and his descendants. And then in verses 22 to 34, we see God not only securing Isaac as the promised seed, but also securing Abraham's position in the land. All the promises of God now look secure and certain. Abraham did not leave his homeland in vain. So let's start by reading verses 11 to 16. Remember, at this time, Sarah has just demanded that Hagar and Ishmael leave the home. 
So beginning to read at verse 11, And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Abraham was deeply distressed. It becomes quite clear that he deeply loves his son Ishmael. And we must not make the mistake here by thinking he only did what Sarah told him to do because, well, there was trouble in his house and Ishmael had become unmanageable and even persecuting his younger brother while while Hagar, the Egyptian maid, the mother of Ishmael, was inciting him and making life difficult. See, at this point, notice it's God himself who intervenes. We're not told how he spoke to Abraham or whether he heard an actual voice or whether it came to him in a dream or as he had done before, appeared to him in a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I mean, we're simply not told. But, but this we do know. God is orchestrating and commanding the events that happened because Abraham would never have sent Ishmael away if the situation in his household was not so desperately unbearable. No, no. This is orchestrated by God. And so God steps in. It's absolutely essential that it be clear that salvation comes through Isaac and not Ishmael. The offspring of Abraham will be called the people of God through Isaac. You know, in the Hebrew, the literal reading is, in Isaac shall your seed be called. Now, immediately, the astute Bible reader is going to remember the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. After Adam and Eve have disobeyed God and brought sin and ruin on the human race, Genesis 3 verse 15 promises a seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And if you're listening yesterday, you heard me say that God insists that his promised seed would come about in a miraculous fashion so that we're led to understand that our salvation never comes about by human effort, but by the gift of God, not by works, but by grace. And so, that there should be no misunderstanding, it's imperative that Isaac be raised as the only heir of Abraham, and that Ishmael and his mother be sent out without any inheritance at all. The entire salvation of the human race is at stake in this event. But that doesn't lessen the burden on Abraham. He loves his son Ishmael deeply, and he's grieved. Our text says it was displeasing to Abraham. Literally, it was very bad in Abraham's eyes. He looked at what God demanded of him and he thought, this is a terrible thing. And here I need to interject because something important is at stake. You know, some Bible readers will wonder why God simply didn't allow Ishmael to die. That would have been so much easier and tidier and it would have been neat. And so listen to an important truth. God was compassionate and loving to Abraham and to Hagar and to Ishmael. He gives Abraham a promise, I will make a nation from the son of Hagar. Even though he's not the child of promise, even so, Abraham's lineage would be traced through Ishmael. And if I might, I need to interject this key point into the contemporary discussion. You know, Muslims trace their spiritual lineage in Ishmael. And if you're a Muslim and you're listening to this, I think there's a message here. 
Yes, indeed, you do stand in the line, in the history, and even in the potential blessings of Abraham. I think that's one of the reasons why many Muslims today will talk about seeing visions of Jesus and calling Jesus their Savior and their Lord. That's because God has not forgotten you. And furthermore, the love of Abraham for his son Ishmael is a reflection of God's love for you. God has not forgotten you, but bids you to come to Christ. And from the beginning, the God of Abraham, who chose Isaac above Ishmael, yet still did not fail to safeguard the future blessing of Ishmael. And so Abraham provided for the basic necessities of Hagar and Ishmael as much as Hagar could carry and sent them away. And in that moment, Abraham secured the future of the promise of God. God would make him into a great nation. Isaac was the child of promise. The promises of God are all now coming true. And at this point, we might think that the Genesis text would now, now that Hagar and Ishmael are gone, simply go on showing how all the future promises are fulfilled in Isaac. We would think this is the last discussion of Ishmael. But that's not what happens. It's very important here for the Bible to show us of God's love for Ishmael, God's love for his mother, God will not abandon them. And so the Holy Spirit, who inspired Moses to write this text, obviously felt it was necessary to tell the account of how God saved Ishmael from death and that God intervened and blessed him for the sake of Abraham and granted him a future. The point is that God will not only safeguard his salvation in the world, but that he's gracious and merciful and just and faithful. Ishmael will suddenly be without a home, but God will not forget him. Yes, he's not the chosen one, but he is a recipient of God's kindness. And that speaks to anyone who came from a home where there was no faith, where you never read a Bible, where you're never taught to worship God or trust in Christ. Yes, God blessed your home. He gave you food and strength and intelligence and blessings of many kinds. You are the recipient of God's kindness. And so today, if he's calling you to Christ, don't turn away. Listen to his voice and come. He has always loved you. That's a gracious word for you. The legalization of marijuana. Are you ready? Prepared? Do you understand the impact on you, your community, young people? What is a trustworthy biblical perspective? And what's the impact physically, spiritually, socially? In Doubt and In Doubt Live is about connecting today's issues of faith and life with a biblical perspective. Join In Doubt's Isaac Dagno, Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfelt, Dr. Lucinda Scott, and Mark Ward, author of Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture, live February 22nd at the Clover Theatre in Cloverdale, British Columbia. It's a free event for young adults, so arrive early. Doors open at 6.30, event begins at 7 p.m. And if you can't make it, no worries. The event is being broadcast live on Facebook and you can submit your questions during the Q&A segment. So for all the info you need, head to indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. I'm reading Genesis 21, 14 to 21. So Abraham arose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. 
When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, we're not told why Abraham arose early in the morning to dismiss his son and his mother. Perhaps after giving them food and water, he wanted them to leave early, for the heat of the desert was severe. He wanted them to have a chance at survival. The wilderness of Beersheba is an area about 30 kilometers west of the southern end of the Dead Sea. And if if you've ever been there, you're going to know it's barren, it's hot, it's inhospitable, and it takes very little imagination to think it's very possible to die there. Certainly, Abraham sent them out into an area that, that made survival uncertain. It's hard not to think about this and not to think about what it meant for all three people. For Abraham, his heart is breaking. But God has spoken. For Hagar and for Ishmael, it must have been shocking and even terrifying. In very short order, they had gone from the security and safety of living within Abraham's wealthy enterprise, guarded by hundreds of trained fighting men, surrounded by cattle and servants of every kind, great wealth, to heading out into the wilderness with nothing but bread and water, without a plan as to what to do when that ran out. It must have felt like the death sentence. And so they walk, and as is expected, they run out of water. Exhaustion is setting in, and Hagar puts, the text says, the child under the bushes. And that might sound very strange to us because, as we know, the child is a 17-year-old lad. If you have a 17-year-old in your house, you, you probably don't put him anywhere. But clearly, she directed him. I notice also that whenever Abraham or Hagar speak about Ishmael, he is called the child. And when God speaks of him, he's called the boy. Now, these two Hebrew words were translated as child and boy, but they aren't necessarily words for a baby. Child can simply mean my child, or as we might say it today, you know, my kids. Boy can be translated as lad or even as a young man. At any rate, I mention that only that we might understand that Ishmael is a 17-year-old lad. But his mother directs him, takes shelter under a bush. It's now clear that their water supply has run out and she goes some distance away and in her despair, she can't watch him die. Clearly by now, their situation has become desperate and they're given to dehydration and it's become very aware they can't go on. See, it is at this moment that the angel of God speaks to her from heaven. We have to assume at this moment that she merely hears a voice and this angel directs her to a well of water that's nearby but not before he reiterates the promise that he's already made. He will make the lad into a great nation. And then, without telling us the details, we find Ishmael is able to make his way in the world. His his mother finds him an Egyptian wife, and Hagar herself is an Egyptian, as we know, and it's natural that she would find a wife for her son from her own people. And then Genesis, having shown us that even while it is the story of God's agenda to bring salvation into the world, still finds time to show us that God is good to all. 
providing for Hagar and for Ishmael and giving them a future and providing for their future. And with that, the book of Genesis now returns to the story of Abraham. So I'm reading now Genesis 21, verses 22 to 34. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. There are a number of key areas here that require explanation. The first is the reference to the Philistines. We read in verse 32 that King Abimelech returned to the land of the Philistines, giving the impression that Abimelech is a Philistine king. You know, when most Bible readers think about the Philistines, we think about the battles that both King Saul and King David fought against them. And we might think about Goliath, the Philistine giant that David defeated on the battlefield. Now, those Philistines were a group of people that came from the region of Crete, and they would not arrive in Canaan for over 500 years. And so it may well be that Philistia was a region of Canaan, and when a people group from Crete migrated there, who were to become the enemy of Israel, they merely took the name of the area in which they lived. That is, they became the Philistines when they arrived in Philistia. And I I say that so that we don't think that King Abimelech, the one whom Abraham covenanted to live in peace with, is a forerunner to the mortal enemies of Israel so many years later. No, no, this is a completely different group of people. Don't confuse them. But this King Abimelech is the same king who only some four years earlier had rebuked Abraham for telling him that Sarah was his sister rather than identifying her as his wife. And furthermore, this same Abimelech was the leader of a people group who were known for their justice and their fair dealings with foreigners. And so what we have in this account is actually quite simple. Abraham is beginning to experience all the promises of God. The long-promised heir is in his household now. The size of his entourage, including his military, is now so large and considerable that he doesn't have to say that Sarah is his sister anymore. He clearly can't be dislodged from the promised land. Indeed, as he increases his influence, it may seem like the future clearly belongs to him. And now instead of Abraham feeling intimidated by Abimelech, it seems like the matter is just the other way around. And so righteous King Abimelech offers to make a treaty with Abraham. No matter what the future holds, he says, let us now form a non-aggression pact so that our two people groups will bless each other. 
that we're going to be allies, that we're going to live in peace, and that we're going to respect each other. And Abraham's ready for a treaty, but he realizes that certain matters have to be attended to. Some of Abraham's wells have been seized, and Abimelech assures Abraham this was not an act of hostility towards him. Indeed, he didn't know about it. And then the two men form a covenant. And with that, Abraham, the man with a child of promise, the man who has a place in the land of Canaan, the man who cannot now be uprooted, must have looked back over the leading of God. You know, once a mere wanderer, now a presence in the land, that even powerful kings are forced to make a covenant with him. And with that, Abraham names God. In the past, he's called God El Shaddai, the God of strength and the God of power. And he's also called God El Elyon, the most high God, God whose authority is over all things. But now he calls him El Olam, the everlasting God, or God, the God from all of eternity. You see, none of the promises have failed because the one who makes the promises is not just a God who exists in time, but he is, as John would say in the book of Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. What God says about the future, well, that's already done because the promise rests in him whose being is in the past and in the present and in the future. El Olam has promised, and therefore, the promise is already fulfilled. What a precious truth. All the future promises that God has made to us are made by El Olam, the God who was and who is and who is to come. John, I think there's an important question here as we hear your message, and it, it's the question of confidence in God's promises. We know God's promises are true. We say that all the time, but God's many of his promises are in the future. We haven't seen them. So how do we maintain confidence? Yeah, it's such an important question because many times I think that Abraham believed on much slenderer evidence than we have today. I mean, he certainly didn't have the account of Christ nor his death or his resurrection. So these are very strong words that tell us um, that God, in fact, always keeps his promises. In fact, what Abraham didn't have is, is the whole thousands of years of the outworking of biblical history. He didn't have any of that stuff. We have it all to consider. And so in many ways, when we consider the promises of God, which, yep, they're in the future because, you know, God has promised us things in glory, which we haven't seen, yet we know that they're true because of God's track record. And so... I think that's a place to stand. Thanks so much, John. God's promises are sure. Join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Truth and Life Today is Back to the Bible Canada's video Bible engagement program that speaks into the culture, current issues, questions of life and faith, and offers a biblical perspective. Recently, we've discussed topics like hell, biblical worship with guest Shane Weeb, issues of suffering and natural disasters, to name just a few. And in the days ahead, you'll watch as we consider the legalization of marijuana, the Christian in politics with guest and member of parliament Ed Fast, and the very current issue of religious freedom with Earl Phillips, executive director of Trinity Western University's proposed law school and much more. So join us for Truth and Life today every Monday online on Facebook, YouTube, the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app, 
and more. And discover the many back programs online as well. For more information or to support programs like Truth and Life Today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.